0: Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Paris Barkley, who's my guest today, is somebody I look up to a tremendous amount. Um, he's one of the most successful directors in Hollywood, but uh, who cares? He's he's a great man who has accomplished a tremendous amount as a human being, as a leader, and uh we got to work together, and I, I was really thinking, you know, we got to work together. You're a couple years older than me, but uh, I was in my early 30s. And although that's a grown-up and you're responsible for your actions, there, there's such a difference in working with people when you're in your 30s than when you're in your mid-50s.
1: Absolutely. Difference for me, too. We'll talk about that.
0: Yes, we will. But the world, and, and like, uh, I love the experience of working with you, and we made a pilot that uh, it was the highest testing pilot that you directed it. David and I wrote it. was the highest testing yeah. pilot that ABC had that year, and in their infinite wisdom, they decided not to put it on television. Which
1: is the way they roll.
0: God <laughs> bless them. It is. It was uh, the way Michael Eisner rolled at that particular moment in time, and um, the the it, it was kind of broke all our, our hearts because we'd had the full experience of the the production guys saying uh, crying at the test and saying, "You guys are moving to California," and like to all this horrible uh, stuff that they
1: they do to you but but you weren't alone i mean i did a pilot the year before for them the chang family saves the world written by john ridley which also tested great but it starred in asian cast and michael eisner said and i'm gonna go on record as saying this this is what we heard that he said no one's gonna
0: watch an asian family there you go and, <laughs> and mean, what he said about our show was that it was uh it you know even though i'm liberal Our audience won't watch a show this liberal because our show was Street Lawyer, based on on the Grisham, and it was about um, people um,
1: who cared about other people, which obviously no one's interested
0: in. Yes, but um, but look, just so people know your credits as a producer, executive producer, writer, and director, Paris. You're you're. It's funny, right? Since I mean, your career is kind of an unparalleled success. I mean, talk about uh, you know all the different shows that that you've uh, directed. I mean, just a number of NYPD Blues, which which you want to two Emmys. Uh, ER West Wing, I mean just the greatest shows. I mean, uh, Huff, which by the way, Hank and I were talking about the other day. I you
1: love know, me some Huff.
0: Me too. Underrated. Brilliant show. Actually, uh, Cold Case CSI in treatment, which you were executive producer on also and a director. Thirty five uh, episodes of it. Yeah, Sons of Anarchy, Glee, just it goes on and on and on. Station 19, which Paris, executive producer on, and also director. Just, uh, But I want to go way back. Here's where right. I want to start. And, and Paris went to Harvard and came far from show business. Was not in a show business family. But one of the things when I started the pod, Paris, was uh, I was always fascinated by the reason I called it the moment was um, moments when everything changed. And I always wonder. The example I always used was the first time R.E.M. played together. Did they look at each other and go, holy shit. And, and to me, you know, at the very beginning of your career, you were part of one of these moments that changed a career, your career and the entire game. And, and that was the Mama Said Knock You Out video by LL, which you directed. So I, I know. and I just want to ask you, you were young, man. You were you were a few years out of school Youngish, years, yeah. or eight years out of school. When you were made, can you just talk me through, first of all, how you got that gig? What proposal you, how'd you get the gig? <laughs> what, uh, here's what I want to hear. How'd you get that gig? Who were you at that time? I and mean, where were you in your career when you got that gig? And then what you experienced making the video. And then when you cut the video, did you know? Talk. <laughs> That's That is a story. <clears throat> okay, so the shortish
1: version is I was at that point quite a struggling music video director who really had one big client, who was LL Cool J. And I'd done a number of videos for Todd, as we call him. I'd done Big Old Butt, which is one of my first big videos with him. We got along. I liked Todd, and Todd liked me. And I was one of the few Black directors working in music videos. There weren't that many, even for Black artists at that time. So it was unusual. I just started this company called Black and White Television in New York. We were going to be non-union. We were going to bring black people into the fold so they'd have some experience and could eventually get another job. That was our goal, but we weren't working that much. I mean, Todd was one of our returning clients. Kwame, the boy, you know, the boy genius we had in Kid and play. I do an occasional video for, but I wasn't actually, you know, storming the David Fincher cast. Right. So, so Todd has a song. Mom said, "Knock you out." Sends me the cassette. I listened to this record. And my ears broke. Uh, It was different from what he was doing. It was harder. It was, you know, there's the baby crying, the sound of it. It was great. He said, give me a proposal. Whatever you're going to do, we're going to do it. I'm going to love it. So I being you know a film buff, as you know, said let's just do Raging bull right Let's right. do a black and white raging bull and let's do a whole boxing match. put Todd in the ring, we'll choreograph it so it's safe. He'll be boxing some motherfucker while he's singing the song. okay That'll be a whole started. crowd that's where the idea started. That's where the idea started. the whole crowd there'll be a crowd that' be you know we'll what do it? those great yeah. shots in the ring you know that everyone the coaches the refs, the whole thing. And and he loved it. He thought it was great. Started training immediately, ready for boxing. You told him get, you're gonna have your shirt off. You knew shirt off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the record had already the record already uh-huh. had the thing, yeah. Had already had that look, and we knew we were gonna tie that into the video somehow. Um, so he was ready to go. So two or three days before the video is ready to shoot, uh Russell Simmons, his manager, says, I, you ain't putting Todd in a ring, boxing somebody.' <laughs> It's like you just heard about it. Right, sure. No, you can't do that. So he was making kind of sense because, you know, it's a valuable client, could get hurt. Uh, So he nixed that. So I said, we're fucked. Um so since we didn't have a lot Wait, of money 3 days going, before you'd already
0: been pre- How days, days many 2 weeks to prep a video back then like now nobody yeah, Did you have
1: maybe two maybe 2 weeks I mean I, I it was so tight because we were also doing Around the Way Girl which was also another oh, from the same album
0: yeah, On the
1: same weekend so I had a two for I was making two videos on one weekend and sort of amortizing them
0: Around the Way Girl really 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 mattered to the core community but yeah. Mama said Knock You Out mattered to every single person in America so there Different, but like they that. didn't
1: expect that they were thinking around the way girl is going to be the first single that's going to be the huge hit that's wanna, going to be the hit
0: i want to talk so this is an interesting i want to talk about the problem solving piece for one second because what a director has to do so often is the landscape changes everyone's looking to them everyone's in a free fall panic and even if they are they have to not let on that they're in a free fall panic right so because what <laughs> people maybe if you're listening to this you don't know but the location was picked already. Like, so the money had been spent, I imagine, yeah. right? Can, we were can building the ring. To, you explain that to the people Listen, We're building
1: the ring. We're doing the thing on Mother Sound stages, downtown New York. We're ready to go. And this can't happen. So, what I decided to do is let's look at around the way, girl. This is sort of the out of box thinking that I'm kind of famous for. Can we simplify that, put a little bit more money behind Mama said, knock you out, and figure out a way to just do it really spare? And really, without the crowd, with just him in the ring, really light the shit out of it. Get a crane, which we weren't really planning to do. We we're going to figure out a way to do it without a crane because we're cheap. So what we did was we made around the way, girl. This video that Todd takes on video. You know, with a little bit of green screen stuff in yeah. there mixed in just for fun it looks really shabby today but it was fun to do so he's just going down the street meeting real people who are background extras of course that we great,
0: that's a great video and it had a huge impact
1: it had Again, it, not, it was the first video that MTV ran that was shot on video. They didn't like it. They thought that looks cheap. And until the record blew up, they didn't play the video. Then they had to play the video. But basically, it was really down and dirty. It probably cost fifteen thousand uh, dollars of our hundred thousand. The rest of the money we put into Mom said knock you out. We built a little set for his basement. Blah 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 blah. So we have this change of plans. So we say, well, can we get photographers in black and, and just have the popping of the lights? There's a way we can build this thing up. We can we can make this into something and call it graphic. But it's all you know based on the exigency of the moment. So <laughs> it comes to shoot day and Todd isn't there. He's not there
0: for one, two, three and a half hours. Oh, come on. and there's no, fo- are there- we don't have cell phones in 1990, really. No, right?
1: we don't. have. We're calling him. We're trying to find him. He's not showing up. I Either. still, to this day, don't know exactly what he was doing, but he was very late. Um, So we, we lit the shit out of it. We spent time with Stephen Ashley Blake, who was the DP, really lighting it, practicing the move, you know, getting this stark look with the stand-in, with the hood on. We wanted it to have drape in his eyes. So because of the time we had, we made it more purdy. So, so so then Todd shows up and he's not in a good mood, uh, which is good for the song. And he performs it maybe five times. That's it. And you, with a
0: music video, you'll do it a hundred times. Had you shot the the, uh, the sort of, it's not just the stuff at the beginning first, or did you do him doing the song? First? No, we did that after we did the performance.
1: We did just the little pops of him in the gym and his grandmother who's coming in. We did that after the performance. So for performance wise, we had very little film, and then he was done. He didn't want to do anything anymore. He's, now, he's wait, not a wait, diva, wait. but he was done with it. You were watching through a monitor, Paris? What were you, how were you watching? Yep. I'm watching through a monitor and I'm saying this looks great, but I need some cuts.
0: Yes. So- oh, you think you're going to write shirts. Sure, you want more time. He so while we were
1: waiting for him, we did shoot the other boxers against White and we had some graphic shit, but it wasn't enough. So eventually he's done. We've gotten what we're going to get, you know, him pumping iron a little bit. We have like five shots of that. Very little film, like six Four canisters of film we have in Mom's to knock you out, and it's black and white, so it has to be sell, sent to Alpha Cine, which was a black and white lab in I think Seattle, to be cut, and then comes back. It looks pretty, you know, okay. Uh, but the editor says you ain't got enough film. He didn't say you ain't, but he's uh, he said this is inadequate. So I said, well, we'll just do the best we can, right? And are you so nervous about this because your biggest client? I that am. I am, and- I am a little worried. It's not going to be great. But he then he sends the first cut. And there's some cuts in there that are 30 seconds long right and i say well we need to break that performance up a little bit and he said you ain't got nothing to cut to right <laughs> so all you got is the other side, of that same thing so then you went the other way you decided yeah, we went the other more. way we just let things extend and we hope that people would buy it as we're sticking with the performance and we're not we're
0: not making this a super cutty video of the time it's, well at the time yeah i gotta say see at the time the whole thing post-Miami Vice was that you were supposed to do all these. The MTV was not supposed
1: it. to be cut, 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 Or the people wouldn't watch. They didn't want to stay with the same image. But here we are just staying with the same image. And then we added sort of that little sepia tone. It's not actually black and white. It's actually a little bit sepia in the whole thing. And, you know, punched up the punches and blah, blah, blah. And then that was our video because it wasn't anything else.
0: And, so and we it was, out and, yeah. and
1: Todd loved it. He thought it was fucking brilliant. Uh, Russell loved it. And I said, okay, I'm not mentioning anything right now because people are loving this video. It goes out and it does blow up. It becomes it becomes, you know, the biggest video I ever did. It wins best rap video and you know, gets a Grammy for Todd and all this other shit. I mean, I think we did Billboard and MTV, and suddenly I'm the guy who did Mama said Knock You Out. And then, you know, other jobs started to come from other people like Bob Dylan. I did a yes. video for, which is awesome, which was one of the most awesome experiences of my life. Yeah, talking to him Did you set yourself up to go talk to him? Oh, I talked to him. In fact, I hold the record, apparently, from Jack Rovner, told me I hold the record for keeping him on a set the longest. Because this was after the Traveling Wildberries, where he had very famously left at some point. They had a double yeah. sitting in for him. He was there for 10 hours. Both wow. performing and you know, he enjoyed himself. We had Molly Ringwald that he'd asked for, we had a pig in his vehicle, everything
0: that you wanted. It crossed over and went. It was really fascinating, right? Because at that time, the rap that crossed over a lot of the time, the iconography was different in the rap that crossed over. Yes. And it was poppier. This was not very pop. There was no gentleness in this, and and there was no sort of pandering and softening the edges of someone like LL, right? And- uh, It's just brutal. And that's what he wanted.
1: He wanted to show that he could be as hard as anybody else because he'd started to get a little bit, we'd lost time. Yeah, I need love. I
0: mean, I need love and stuff like that, which was yeah. this other side of it. Him. Was, yeah. did, did did you have a moment in there when you watched the full thing after those guys said they loved it, where you, you recognized, oh yeah, this is great, or, did you not, were you on to the next thing? Like, how does your mind go? No, I, I didn't have,
1: I don't think, the next thing. But I did recognize, and I've kept this with me throughout, how lucky I am. I mean, how lucky I am that things just tend to fall together more than they fall apart for me. And how grateful I was at that time that that was one of those times that it did. I recognize that that's not me. It's not my brilliance. I mean, I'm there with making up some shit, you know, like I do, but it's not, it's about fortune in many ways. And in this case, the time, the video, Todd being late, Stephen Ashley Blake lighting it, all those things conspired that were beyond my control to make something great. And that is the essence of creativity
0: in the modern age. So, a lot it's, of people, sorry, I have to push back a little bit, Paris. All right. A lot of people, the star isn't showing up. The pressure is rising. I've seen many people, instead of using that time to focus on lighting, using that time to fucking lose it, yell, threaten to cancel, walk away, (laughs) right? You, because to have the focus and discipline of mind to say, well, the only thing I can control right now is the environment LL's gonna eventually walk into. Mm -hmm. So I think, isn't that something, and I wonder a kid from where you're from, who found his way to Harvard, don't you think that a bit of the old elbow grease and discipline and focus is something you bring to bear on on, on, on what you're, you know, your intellect, which is extraordinary. But the, don't you think the discipline is part of this and the, the rigor? I do. Let's talk, to, let's get deep for a
1: minute. Yeah. I just have a philosophy about God. And it's sort of like this. There's a river that's God and you row. But if you don't row, you don't go anywhere. But you also don't control the river. So, and you can roll against the river and see how that works for you, or you can roll with it and make your life a lot easier. So my job is I'm rolling with the river. I'm rowing, though. I'm working and I'm going faster and I'm working hard, but I'm with that flow. So that's, that's the way I roll literally in this case, right. is just to find that path and then just stay in it and try not to go in opposition to it. Hey, are yelling and screaming. I've seen that, that, that's not going to make that video. Great. This is
0: yeah. not. Did does your mind just naturally go to work in the problem as opposed to focusing on the problem? Because I think that's a divide, right? There are people who work the problem and there are people who focus on the fact that there is a problem. Did you? I have, have to train my,
1: I have trained my mind to do that. I have trained my mind to do that from football, actually, I think. From playing football, I played peewee football when I was a kid and then high school football. And I think part of the education I got and instilled in my mind is that there's always a way. There's a way around. There's a way to block. There's a way to accomplish what you have, and it takes some, in that case, physical brute force. But there is a way. So I've I've sort of just, just decided that that's going to be my approach to life. There is going to be a way out of this, and all you have to do is keep your head down, keep your shoulders in the game, not get hurt,
0: and make it happen. But okay, that's not all that you have to do. Because so I'm remembering this thing I, I when I, I had Malcolm Spellman on on the podcast that we we talked about. Uh, he was talking about you know sort of the the uh, the way in which certain aspects of who he is being a black man in Hollywood uh, at times have made the journey more challenging for him. Uh, And I'm thinking about you standing there on a set with Todd and that whole world and the world was homophobic in 1990. But Paris, the record business and the rap business was like the most homophobic business in the fucking world. I was around. I mean, you know, in 1990, I was right there yeah. in the thick of all that business. I was right there in that business. You know, I always want I mean, you and I must have been in the same rooms in the business a couple of times. I don't yeah, you know. No, like I, we never met then, but I'm, I'm sure like we knew of each other. But. So I think this is a good time to talk about something you said to me once. We we're staying on the set of Street Lawyer and it was the kind of thing that as a young man in my early there was no way i could really understand it when you said it i thought about it for weeks which is you said you i I hope this is something you've said sanson you remember it but you said to me there were five versions of yourself you had to be Mm. and can you i think it's really important i I sort of tried to say it to malik on the podcast that you'd said this thing to me but i don't know if it's five or four or six or whatever it is but can you? you know you were trying to say i I don't remember that. that specific number but i
1: remember that idea i mean i do have to you know i my whole thing is I'm going to work where I'm going to work, both physically and emotionally. So from the time I went to high school, where I went to virtually an all white prep school, one of the first black student to go to this all white prep school. What was the school? It's called the Lalamere School for Boys. And that's, and that's where that's,
0: John Roberts went also, where right? John Roberts
1: went. She's John Roberts was from a, a well-to-do it's in Indiana. I lived in Chicagoland, so it's 60 miles away from where I went. I was offered a scholarship to come and play football and to integrate the school and be Jackie Robinson. And how they decided that it would be me, because I was quite a quirky little kid. I was played the chord organ. I was in football. I was writing songs. I was in track. So I sort of had this weird, who the fuck is he thing, but they thought that'll be interesting. Let's throw him with all the white boys, the preppy boys, and see how that works. So I go to the school, and I figure... I'm alone here. You know, I'm pretty much the guy. And how am I going to get over? How am I going to survive? I don't I wasn't really a person who had been away from home. We didn't go to summer camp like that. It just this is a boarding school. I had to bring my shit in a duffel bag and live in a room with some white kid. So this is all very, very new. And I don't want to be unhappy. Uh, but the first six months I was there, I was deeply unhappy and felt quite alone. And, you know, I would smoke a cigarette trying to be friends with the guys behind the dorm. They'd say, yo, you nigger lifted. it. And I would go, they didn't say oh, yo. So, God. And I would say, wow. But never turn it into a confrontation. I wasn't really strong enough to stand up for myself because I want to fit in. Okay, I want to make it work, you know. So then I decided I'll just kick their asses. I'll just be the best student. I will be the captain of this fucking football team if it's the last thing I do. My junior year, John Roberts, was the captain. And then I became co-captain with my friend, John Langley. We were the first linemen in a long time who had actually been captains of the football team. And so I just said, I'm going to achieve. And then John went to Harvard, and the headmaster decided that I was going to go to Harvard. And I didn't want to go to Harvard. I wanted to go to Stanford. (laughs) So he got me into Harvard through pulling some strings. It's a long ass. Another story. I got to go to Harvard and visit. I stayed in John Roberts' room. And uh, he'd study for tests, barely spent any time with me, and I eventually got into Harvard. And I realized now there's another role I have to play. I'm now the underprivileged, on financial aid student at Harvard. So this is a variety. Plus, by this time, I know I'm gay, and that's not going to be very popular. Right. So, so I have to sort of play that game. So I'm becoming a master of playing the game. I'm becoming a. a a charade saying I'm
0: becoming a you know yeah I think what you said to me was that you you said you were saying that to me you said uh we were it was late 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 one night and we were just standing around waiting for us some setup to happen and it was you made an offhanded comment about like you know somehow that uh it had I know what happened it had to do with an, an actor we were struggling an actor. With? we were sort of having some pri- quietly having some sport with an actor who was acting out in a way that you and I didn't enjoy and David didn't enjoy. And we were sort of, he had done some, uh, he had sort of condescended to some people and we didn't enjoy it. The three of us. Well, although we greatly enjoyed it, actually, we laughed a lot about it. The but then, but then so I'd kind. forgotten about that till right now. But then you, so kind. you, you said to me, you know, you guys about me and Dave, you could just be who you are. You're like who you are. That's the way the world's set up you just kind of who you are. And you said you go i have to be one thing when i'm with black people one thing when i'm with gay people one thing when i'm talking to hollywood and you said i have to be like four or five yeah. and I, yeah. what was amazing to me was that it was conscious on your part and, and now yeah. people call it code switching but no one had that word back yeah. then. but you know what now i've given
1: up that theme explain uh i don't feel like i'm gonna do that anymore right I just think, yes, to a certain point in my career, that is what I, I had to do. But now I feel authenticity is the thing. And I learned that from doing a film with some people who, when they found out I was gay, stopped talking to me and stopped dealing with me. And they were the producers, and they dealt directly with the actors and directly with the designer, and sometimes even talked directly to the DP, but they would not speak to me. And I realized that by not being who I actually am, it's causing more damage than being who I am. And so that helped me to come out in the industry. And since then, I've kind of just said, you know, people who don't like who I am, they won't call me up, and they won't work with me. And people who do will, and people who don't care will. So I'll go with the people who don't care and the people who want what I have and just avoid the haters. And, and that has been the way that it is. So I've, I just figured now, and I also tell this to younger directors, authenticity has more of a, of a stake. Now I feel, I think you just have to kind of be who you are and know that there'll be a natural selection that will, in sometimes some ways hurt you,
0: but in many ways help you. But isn't, isn't that makes complete sense to me, but, but uh, in terms of people as they're, trying to engage or get to where you are, right? You're at a place now where it's an incoming call business all the time. I and mean, nobody, not if you wanna make a $100 million movie, then mm-hmm. you gotta generate it. But you know, you're in an incoming call business for the last long number of years. And, uh, but I think to me, what the point I took from it was that for some, so, you know, someone like you to be standing there, every interaction could be freighted in a way that you don't really know is going on and that every interaction had a certain kind of charge to it because you had to be also calibrating and calculating what was going on in a way that someone like me wouldn't have to and i, I thought that that's was true. a deep point. and i think it's worth i don't know i think it's worth talking a little bit about what that's like on the receiving end of it
1: well, here's the, the great thing about it. that is also a gift. I mean, that code switching, we'll just call it that now is a gift because it's allowed me to be much more sympathetic towards actors, because to a large extent, I spent the youngest part of my career acting, you know, if I'm going to go into a room and I want this movie, that's not a movie for a black man, I'm going to have to make them comfortable That I, as a black man, can see their white world and present it in the white way. But if I'm going to this movie that's a black movie, I'm going to have to make sure I'm ghetto enough to get the job. Right. So, So, I mean, I think. Yes. But less so now. But And part of it is one of the first things I did in Hollywood when I came out here is I wrote a movie called The Next Hot Negro. That was about early 90s. I wrote the script that was about this film being made in which this young black director was so hot because Hollywood just wanted Negroes. They wanted more juice and more poetic justice. And every movie that was being made in this Hollywood was Negro. But this Negro wasn't Negro enough. (laughs) For many of the people. So, this Negro had to increase their negritude in order to succeed in the business because that is what is desired. And while it never got made, it got me out some rewriting jobs to HBO. I got to rewrite a Disney movie. It actually was one of the things that kept me employed for a couple of years as a writing sample because it was so crazy and people found it so funny. But I found it very true. I found it very, you know, people want a product that has a brand on it. And sometimes the brand is the color. And sometimes the brand is soul. And sometimes the brand is what you bring, which is this fierce intellectual thing, plus this fusion of music, because everything you do is music. So even when it's just talking, it's music. That's a brand. So it just depends on what they want.
0: So this is what I was gonna say. People are looking at this and they're wondering, uh, I don't see Paris' name directing Billions. That is not for lack of trying on my part. Let me no. just say, I've... And also, back. it's a
1: show that, I mean, I'm, I'm still in season five. Wait, what, what's yeah. out now? Five, five is the only one out?
0: We only aired half of five. It's coming back in September
1: because we, we got stopped by... I'm only up to Aspen right now, but I have not enjoyed a series. Well, actually, Mayor of Easttown now comes to the center. Every episode, I've enjoyed it. Usually, I- there's series that I just think, okay, next... This is one where every episode I both learn something. I've been yeah, I just think it's, you know, I just don't know that world. I realize the more I watch billions, I just don't know about that whole currency world that he's in. And I love arcane shit like that. As it reminds me of the West Wing in that way, where Aaron just let the people talk because they know what they're talking about, and you just catch up. And I love
0: catch up, but I'm catch up. up, But but I'll say, like I saw so when in in uh and, and Paris was supposed to direct, heartbreaking for us, Paris was supposed to direct a couple of episodes, but um, in the last two seasons, but the COVID just screwed it up. So uh, COVID someday, really screwed it up. someday we will, someday this will happen and Paris will direct a show of ours and uh, uh, we can't wait for it to happen. But, um, uh, but Paris, I, I will say even you mentioned poetic justice and everyone wanted that kind of thing. And uh, like that movie and in a bit of poetic justice though. So season two, David and I get a, a note from a hero of ours, John Singleton, truly, a he- truly a hero. Um, I-, I watched Boys in the Hood five or six times when I was uh, obsessed with, with the movie and, and, and John and I met him a bunch of times. And it turned out he was a huge fan of the show. So we asked him to come direct And when we told certain people. They started saying, like, I don't know, this re- you know, reputation. Is, is he going to be really ready? I mean, this constraints of television. And we were like, he's an Academy Award nominated screenwriter. He's directed gigantic fast and he's going to be, it's all going to be fine. You know? And, uh, and no one ever said the word, well, but you know, he's a, you know, you're hiring a black guy. Uh, but I will tell you, they didn't say those words, but he shows up and he's the, I will, so this day, maybe three directors on the show have been as prepared as John, you know, every scene diagram drawn ahead of time, the thematics, what the purpose of the scene was, you know, and. Uh, and it was just a, a David and I looked at each other the night after we, so, so people had got us like, uh, cause they kept saying, you know, we hear these stories, we hear reports and John made every day and, and shot the shit out of it and, and taught us stuff. Cause it was early on in the run taught us about how to shoot our show, which the best directors do. And I just was, I David and I remember driving back after the shoot, like the second day going, Holy shit. Like that's to John Singleton. Like, that's what John Singleton has to fucking deal with. And it, 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 it makes me wonder how you've dealt with that once, you know, how you've dealt with walking into rooms and directing with this extra level of scrutiny, like someone shopping in Barney's uh, who's got a platinum credit card, only they're worried you're going to steal a coat. Wow. Uh, well, I talk I do like say- a billion no, character sometimes. I can't help it. No, go ahead.
1: You, you saw me. I, I just, I guess I still over-prepare to this day. I just started a show yesterday, this new show for Ryan Murphy called Monster, okay. which is the Jeffrey Dahmer story, which is obviously a subject that you know, I can't wait to delve into. So we started shooting it yesterday, and they were all stunned that I came in with complete shot lists for the first couple of days, widely distributed. You know, I had already sat down with the DP. He knew exactly where I was gonna go. I met with Evan Peters, who plays Dahmer. And he said, no one's ever asked to meet with me before. We shoot. So you just show up on the set with a mask on and you say action? That's some bullshit. That's ridiculous. So we got, you know, the things I do are the things I do. And they're all surprised because they think I'm over it. I'm not over it. It's always exciting. And also, I got to be more prepared. I can't really fail. And maybe it's just left over from the days when a black man can't fail at all. Or maybe it's
0: just me. I just
1: want to be great. I think, it's so I, gotta be I think it's both.
0: I think it's both. It's both. And also, I, I got to back up for one second, because how have you not written a play with you and John Roberts in that fucking room in Harvard. I, I'm not even kidding at all, by the way.
1: No part of me is kidding. No part of me is kidding. The John Roberts I knew has no relationship to the John Roberts to the Pierce. So I believe I probably know more of what the real John Roberts is, which is he's a really nice guy. He's super shrewd. He's smart. He did not appear to be any kind of ultra conservative guy. We did a production of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. I was Snoopy. He played Peppermint Patty. Um, in a wig no picture, no pictures of that have ever shown up by the way throughout his hearing and I don't know why um, he was just a regular guy from Indiana who seemed to be like really nose to the grindstone wanting to get the A's you know there's no trace of him being any kind of reactionary my feeling is that's probably who he really is He's probably just somewhat conservative, but not as conservative as he needs to be to be liked and to be where he is. But you can see from his rulings now, there's there's some wiggle room and some reasonability
0: in John. I can see that, too. I read every Supreme Court decision. And um, I I can see that, too. And I read I read the biography about him, too, which shed some light on it. But um, did you when you got to Harvard, did First of all, you know, um, the way that Mark Maron talks about Saturday Night Live and not it, Harvard to me is like this incredible thing. And uh, because of how it can change, you know, it, it does. Um, well, I wonder if it does this for you. I mean, it does sort of like level the playing field, I think, always. Like when you say Harvard, it just stops a conversation sometimes. Or yeah, it is that way. Uh, I wish I would have gone to class. That's my one thing. But when
1: I arrived there. <laughs> My family drove me in our, you know, Woody station wagon all the way from Chicago to Boston because I really couldn't afford to fly at that time. So I was driven there to Harvard and there in their middle, which is the old one of the oldest dorms right in the yard. They pulled the car in there and we took all my stuff up five flights. And I had this roommate who I, I haven't seen much since that freshman year. And, you know, then they turned around and they drove back. They couldn't even stay overnight. They didn't have a place to stay overnight. So they just slept in the car. You were just dropped at Harvard. Just I was dropped at Harvard. They stayed for like an hour or two. And then they drove back and they said, bye, good luck. And uh, I was fortunate that in that freshman year, I met some friends. I started writing musicals and plays and I became really good friends with Arthur Goldman whose family, you know, was the family, which I didn't know at the time, that owned the New York Times because he was Arthur Sulzberger-Golden. And he became my best friend at that time. And he lived across the quad. And I spent a lot of time in his room. And he introduced me to a lot of shit that I didn't know, like Stephen Sondheim right. and the New York Times, actually, because <laughs> he had it delivered to his room every day. Uh, and 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 through his friendship, and I eventually went, and I met his grandmother, Iphagene Sulzberger. And, you know, I just saw kind of a different perspective. And that's one of the things Harvard does. It takes these people who are incredibly wealthy and from very successful families, and these other kids who they just think have the potential to change
0: the world and they mix them all up and say, good luck, guys. We're just going to offer you some classes if you want to go. No, I've seen, I mean, I, you know, as as you know, my son went and I watched that collection of I watched that collection of people and what that whole thing is like. And it is, it's a remarkable, there's no place like that on earth, I don't think, exactly, that offers that stuff. Uh, for all yeah, but problems. I wish I would have gone to
1: Yale in the end because I think they were better for theater and I think music. That's just a thing that's
0: just a thing certain Harvard people say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 honestly, that's what that is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well maybe I'm it's fine. a thing. that I do wish I would have gone to Yale.
1: Bruce Cohen always tells me I should have gone to Yale. She's yes,
0: just... you would have fit. Obviously, you would have just totally fit in it. Yale, of course. That's what, well, but oh yeah, they had the whipping poops. We had the crocodillos, which were like a B unit whipping oh, Doesn't poof. even. It doesn't even yeah. can, but you didn't you? I imagine Boston was better for. I, I wonder if. Boston. Oh, no, I was gay bashed in, in Boston. Boston was, was one of the most racist cities in America. Wait, you were gay
1: bashed <laughs> and uh, like n worded in Boston both? Well, no, n worded in, in Indiana. Gay bashed in Boston. I was just coming out of a bar when the bar closed, a gay bar, sporters in the wrong part of town, South Boston. I got funny. jumped by some kids, beaten with a bat. I finally got to a cab, and the cabbie took me back to Harvard Yard. And even though I was bleeding and I said, I don't have any money to pay you. And he said, it's OK. It just dropped me off. And I thought, holy fuck. My sister was right because it was, you know, the time of busing. This is 1970, 74, 75. The, you know, busing was such a big thing. Boston's very, you know, charged. It is to this yeah. day, as you can see with the new mayor. So, I mean, the whole issue was right there. So, no, I didn't have a super pleasant time at Harvard. And a lot of it I've kind of blacked out really now. Um, because the city itself isn't a great place to, you know, the city of Boston. Cambridge is Cambridge. It's a pocket, you know, it's protected. But Boston itself is not a place I like to visit. How did that change your behavior? Um, Well, I didn't go out quite as much uh, (laughs) and I didn't go out alone quite as much, but I am kind of a little bit of a thrill seeker. Uh, which is why I keep doing all different kinds of shows, even Jeffrey Dahmer shows, because I do like the adventure of finding something new and discovering something. And I've learned to tame that here in my, you know, now many. Well, decades. you're married with two children. Mean, you're married with two children. You've <laughs> exactly. married a very long time. There's so. not much late night gay bar closing in my life. But also yeah. that was the beginning of the time when I was drinking too much. College is when I really started drinking and my drinking was excessive. Even in college, I mean, we spent a lot of time at a bar called 33 Dunster Street there. And that was like my, you know, that was the time my brother died in my freshman year there. He was killed in an automobile accident. The oldest, oldest guy in my family and my father's namesake. And that really ruptured our family when I'm still at Harvard. And that break, I think, is one of the things that helped give me an excuse to really dig into the booze. By the time I left Harvard and got to New York, I was pretty much a drunk. When did you get it together? Um, it took a while, it took the entire 80s. So, I, I'm working in New York in advertising as a copywriter, originally as an account supervisor, and then a, a copywriter at various agencies, even the Mingo Jones agency, which was like Putney Swope on steroids, right. kind right. of thing. The Mingo Jones agency, I'm was amazing. Yes, I understand. Really, the name of the agency that I briefly worked at, who had, was famous because they had written, You, we do chicken right. That was like the wow. big biggest... <laughs> yes. Anyway, so, so I was working in all these advertising agencies and writing musicals at night and drinking and coking and doing everything else I could in the clubs and studio and area and you know the saints, and all those things in New York in that time. Area,
0: I really thought but that was a great idea. I hurt myself so badly at Area one night. <laughs> yes, I, I really I really did such a stupid thing one night in area, but so you were in all these clubs. I'll tell you so it was
1: not till 1989 that I got sober. 1989 and my health was so bad, my liver was distended. My, I had a hernia, an incarcerated hernia that I used to push in and out for the entertainment of my lovers. Uh, So I'm like in really bad shape. I'm not able to keep a job. And I just had started this music video career. It's not, no one's taking me on. And my music video partner at that time, Joel Hinman, who helped create the company said, you really need to go to rehab as did many other people I love. And so I went to rehab in 1989 and uh, I have not had a drink or drug since then.
0: That's an incredible, I mean, you you know, you told it quickly, but we can fill in all the details of how, uh, how traumatic the whole time was that led to that and what that, that was like. What's incredible to me is how quickly thereafter your career just rocket ships. So it's almost like there was some part of you that must've had some complicated relationship with the notion of that kind of success that kept you getting fucked up.
1: Well, here's the, the, the drinking and the drugs were blocked to that success. Right. That's what I discovered uh, for, for me, because I had a long family of alcoholics, not my parents, but my, my parents, parents were all pretty much alcoholics and were all dying of various alcohol related causes yeah. that they called other things. Um, I realized that once that was gone after a brief period of depression, I had so much clearer thinking, and I had so many more hours in the day, Yeah. <laughs> and I had so much more money, and my music was getting better and was easier to write. Things were flowing once I didn't have the impediment in what, what
0: I thought was the assistance of Coke and alcohol. I love what you just said about the music, because it makes me you think you're stuffed, the rhythm of the dialogue that you seem to be attracted to the way you cut scenes the way you shoot scenes it does have this incredible you are it's funny i i separate people editors in particular but directors too into people who understand the music of it and people who don't and some people can be very successful if it's not music to them but i have a hard time because my thinking about this stuff is so musical i have a hard time with it and you clearly like, do you think that the fact that you engage with music the way you do helps you in terms of staging things and c- camera and, and understanding the way you're going to put them together? I would imagine it, it must because that ineffable thing of the rhythm of the cuts, right? It's, it's the rhythm of the cuts, but and sometimes
1: it is songs with music, but sometimes it just is. And when I'm talking to actors about this, too, and George C. Wolfe, I've seen him direct, does it the same way. Sometimes you can only describe the scene in music emotionally. You can only describe it in terms of rhythm and in terms of a feeling. And sometimes it's. Yes. You know, this scene needs to.
0: And and actors hear that and they kind and of. You, mean, un- you can say to an actor, syncopate this more. I want more syncopation. It's-
1: yeah, But the whole thing, I mean, West Wing was a perfect example of this. Aaron Sorkin is a super music writer, and the music and the way the words are and the order that they're in has a sound. It's a song. And if you're not singing the song, and every once in a while we had an actor on the West Wing who just couldn't sing the Aaron Sorkin song, and it's only one song, even though many characters sing it. (laughs) But that's another day. Uh, But the one song is beautiful, and I never get tired of it. Uh, But the rhythm of it is very particular. So you'd have to fall into that music. And now I teach this first-time director's course at the the DGA. It's one of the things I do in my abundant spare time. And I realize I can't really explain that to first-time directors who don't know music. If you don't know music and you're not you know, any kind of instrumentalist, I can't really explain to them how the song, the episode is a song. And when you read it, you should hear what the shape of that song is. And then you hear what instruments need and how it should be played and what its rhythm is and how to conduct that song. Some of some scripts are a concerto, some scripts are really a symphony, some scripts are a pop song by James Taylor. And you just have to feel what the song is and then get the whole company it's so
0: brilliant and it's such a brilliant insight into how a director needs to think. You know, i, I suddenly flash into uh, elia kazan's book on directing where he has that huge gigantic section about all the things a director should know and it can be imposing but like the truth is if you're a young person listening to this or even an older person who's enge- wants to engage like it, you're so well served i mean tell me if you think i'm wrong you're the expert on this but i view it as the showrunner thing too which is you know as you started talking i started thinking about um the the Bobby Simone episode and uh I started thinking about well that's a guy who directed that has watched a lot of opera in his life and has listened to a lot of opera in his life Mm -hmm. right and and you know you have to have seen Tosca like like if you want to be a director you have to have listened to Tosca
1: I I hadn't thought about that too but that's so interesting that you say that (laughs) but I had thought in the end in the last scene when he dies yeah um we we sort of Extrapolated all lang Syne. You know, there are sure. certain songs that are emotionally resonant with people, but you can't uh. be too explicit about them. So what Mike Post did was he did, you know, almost in whole notes, that was all yeah. in that in within that score and within the bagpipes of it all. And it's that's you know sort of the subliminal things that you do here as you're trucking. See, yesterday I'm doing this a series of scenes in the disco where Jeffrey picks up his victims. I shouldn't probably reveal this too much, but I will say that every scene I knew exactly what the song would be, even if they replace it. Yes. Even if it's replaced later, I had that's to fine, have you it. have it. You have
0: it. That's I true. had to have
1: it, and I feel the actors had to have it. You know, I put, the song
0: was cast. I put songs and scripts in scripts all the time and I do it because David and I do but i do it because i want and yes it may change though late, it's funny like later in our careers it's probably not going to change because we i'm not just casually doing it if i'm doing it it's, it's like
1: no it's because i know what if it's springsteen you've talked to
0: springsteen yeah about. i'm saying right i've just put it in my <laughs> i know what it's going to be yeah so so uh, and, and because um because it's i've written the, often i'm writing the scenes to music i often am writing to music that i'm going to put in the sequence beca- and and if you're a creative person yeah i just think you're so because some people say like oh i don't want to have to watch all that stuff the old people care about you know i only want that's like yes please find your own heroes but you got to also know that stuff you got to read all of it and you got to watch all of it and you got to listen to it right and 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 and, like i don't like to understand ballet but i've watched a lot of ballet because Mm -hmm. i may have to talk to somebody on set about it yeah it's not my thing. It doesn't move me. But I I could talk about it if I have to.
1: Yeah. And you also, the experience will be something will, it'll leak into your brain in another way. But you, you brought up something that was super interesting, which was the films that people told me to watch, I didn't want to watch. Because they told me to watch, you know, the Dolce Vita. And they told me to watch... some Fellini shit, and I didn't want to watch that shit. I wasn't that interested in the Italian masters, or even the French New Way, but because Harvard had this theater across the street, you could get double bills, and my friends wanted to see that artsy fartsy shit, I got dragged into it, and now I realize that I have learned a lot from the 400 Blows that doesn't always help me every day, but it's just one of those things back there that is a piece that you use. I tell this to everyone in television I say needs to watch Robert Altman. I say yes. all should be much more like Robert Altman. That's the problem with television. People say their lines like in the script,
0: but they really need to do it like Nashville.
1: In general, would like TV much.
0: Better. Nashville, the Robert Altman movie, folks. Not Nashville, the TV series, which a fine TV series, but that's not what Paris is Nashville. talking about. That's a totally different thing. Nashville, the three and a half hour uh, family and music drama. Drive- wrong with America. It's you know
1: Nashville and Taxi Driver make a great double bill. If you really talk about, you know, presidential assassinations plus American psychoness, you know, those are two
0: fantastic movies to
1: to see together. That would have been a great Harvard Square double, Bill. I wonder if they did that.
0: Actually, they might have done it. Yeah, no, that's true. And those French movies, too, the French New Wave, that's, I agree with you. By the way, everybody, for me, Melville's the guy. Yes, Truffaut is super important. I love Jules and Jim, but for yeah. me, Melville's the guy. gears here. I just want to kind of like ask you some very sort of like practical things. Oh, sorry. Before that, I have to say, Paris, my wife is filmmaker uh, and has come close with Jimmy Smiths. Mm. Um, uh, just really was weeping at your speech and and uh, and that speech and the one you made, uh, you know, to your children about being purposeful men it makes me wonder uh, and all these stories you're telling. Are you writing your memoirs? Are you in it? Are you in the middle of it? Are you going to consciously devote a half hour a day to it? Like, where are we at? Because you have to do it, man.
1: It's a really good question. I thought I would do a cookbook first. I'm really interested in directors who cook. So I thought I would do a director's cookbook with John Pavro and just talk about the process of directing and its parallels Great. to cooking, which I'm obsessed with. I mean, just the you give us the recipe. Because we've made something like that before, we know certain things about the recipe. We know this recipe doesn't have enough flour. This recipe needs this. We tweak the recipe, but we want to deliver the same thing that you've got, only better. That's part of the whole thing of directing, certainly in television. So I want to do that. But then maybe I'll do, I don't know. I I think my story is more interesting to me than people think it is. I don't know if it's all that interesting. I know people say that, but I kind of actually feel that.
0: No, you should write the memoir, I'm pretty sure. Because well, you have a real gift with words and, uh, and the story, I think you should do it because it's a memoir that people, without even you trying to teach lessons, can just take a lot from, I think, in terms of, you know, the things you've seen, what you witnessed, how you, because, you know, on an hour long podcast, it's really hard, right? And that guy said the thing to you about the cigarette. I mean, we could do a week on that. And yeah, how you? Deep. We could do a week on how you, the decision tree, as people like to say now, that led you to not punch him, and to not, uh, and to just channel it into someday I'm going to win Emmys, motherfucker. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a really interesting sort of, uh, I think, compelling thing. I have to ask a little bit about NYPD Blue because, to me, and West, I'm a West Wing fanatic. Mm-hmm. To me. NYPD blue is the, is the um, all time great show that is, um, overlooked sometimes because it's a procedural because it ran for so long because it had four lead actors, uh, you know, um, it, uh, right. Caruso. Yeah. Four guys, right. Car- Caruso then, then Jimmy, then Mark Paul Gossamer or whatever that guy's name is, and then That's Ricky, Ricky, Bro-
1: Schroeder out.
0: Ricky Schroeder and then Mark Paul Gossamer or whatever. Right. So it gets over, overlooked, but for me, when you talk about the musicality, you just talk about what you learned and what you brought? Don't just talk about what you learned. I want both. What you mm-hmm. learned and what you brought to NYPD. Because to me, Milch is the greatest TV writer, along with Chase and, and Matt Weiner, and you know, of my, uh, and Aaron, I guess, but of my time. I actually think Milch is, the, if I'm being honest, I think Milch, is the, the, Milch and Chase are the two best, probably. Yeah, so I, I uh, agree with you on that.
1: Um, but when I came to NYPD Blue, I came to replace a director that had fallen out. And I came without an interview. Mark Tinker just had spoken to someone. I think Robert probably was Chris Chulak on ER.
0: Where were you in your career at that? Where were you in your career at that? It's,
1: you know, maybe 20 episodes in, but I'd done ER. And I'd done ER only because John Wells had hired me to do Angel Street, which was my first job ever. And he did that based on Mom said, Knock You Out, coming full circle and other videos that I'd done. He gave me a shot to direct the show called Angel Street, which was a procedural that he did in Chicago that failed with Robin Gibbons and Pam Gidley. That was in between China Beach and ER. And then he did ER and then he brought me back season two or three. I can't remember what it was to come and direct ER. I did really well there. Love that show. You know, it was in my wheelhouse. And then I guess Chulak had spoken to Mark Tinker, and Mark Tinker said, Yeah, I'll hire him because Mark Tinker goes with his gut. So he hires me for NYPD Blue, and I come in and I get the one script David hasn't written. What? The really? first script I got was
0: written by David Mills. Uh, well, who went on, just for people who know, went on yeah. to co create The Wire. So uh, exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly. David Mills was a writer who broke through the David Mills sort of embargo. On scripts for NYPD Blue at the studios insistence, they said, we got to have a script that you haven't written. You got to give a you got to give another writer a script and you can go on and catch up. And maybe you'll have scripts on time if you have an episode that someone else writes. So David Mills writes a script upstairs, downstairs features a murder. It sounds it's very Milchian. I have to say, you would not know this script wasn't a Milch. script. It was so well well
0: done. You don't think
1: a polish on it they said he couldn't get on it blah 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 he did do the final edit of it but when he did the final edit of it he said the script is, is really good this is as good as something I would do he was totally happy with it and then I got the bath to bask in the glow of David Mills and they hired me to be a supervising producer like the next season So my Robin left and I became a supervising producer and then Tinker and I did a lot of episodes, three or four episodes a season. So we got to work really closely with Milch and there is no writer on television that I have. I I don't have a relationship with David Chase, so I don't really know him. I do know David and David was, um, you know, he's just a God to me in terms of what he does in writing. And what he taught me is you must exceed people's expectations. You can't, if if it is what people expect, it is absolutely not good enough. A perfect example is, I know this is maybe my sixth or seventh episode. There's a script where there's a lesbian lady and her partner is killed and the lesbian lady is being interviewed by Sipwitz and she has no reaction to her partner who is lying dead on the floor still at this moment. She seems out of it. And we think, is she the killer? This is very strange. And he never intended for her to be the killer. He hadn't finished the episode yet. Right. Oh, some lesbians on the crew were upset and told me to go talk to David about it. So, so I said, I'll be happy to. So I go and talk to David because David likes me. And David looks at me and goes. <sighs> then he goes down to his writing room and lays on the floor and starts to dictate a revision of the scene, the scene where Sipwoods is interviewing her and her dead lover is there. And he realizes, OK, I know what they're saying. This, there's a point there, but can I make it better? And so as he's dictating it to the guy, I can't remember his name, who's typing it, he just starts striking things out and he changes it so that she still has that same, you know, incredibly copacetic demeanor until a photographer that he introduces takes the sheet off of the woman's body to take a picture. And then she starts screaming. Oh. And then she starts screaming and then Sipwitz has to deal with her in a different way. He didn't want her to be a suspect. He knew that was a little bit of a red herring and he didn't like it. But he said, how can I take that note and just turn it into something that's a magnificent moment. And it ended up being a
0: fantastic moment. Well, was, yeah. Yeah. comes out of the shock. She comes out of the shock, basically, yeah. right? Um, the shock
1: of the whole thing. And you think in the scene, oh, she's, she's not, blah, blah. And then she cops, and it's like, Jesus this is why you're so brilliant because the
0: scene now has this shape it's it's a it's an arc it's just like so anyways, okay so. you you just blithely said something that I have to have you talk about and I wrote this down to ask you so it's great which oh. is you said so I said sure I'll go talk to him. but the way the dynamics of a television show work that <laughs> is not an easy thing like if you're listening to this and you're not in the TV business you're going to, well sure if I directing the episode you just go talk to the guy the pressure on everybody involved is so great because of the time and the money and the expectations. So the showrunner is in charge and the showrunner has to, has been, you know, tried their very, very, very best to get it right. They have a vision. They also know, the showrunner, Milch also knows, well, let, I can solve this in the edit. I know I can solve this problem. It's, uh, this is not something I want to be fucking bothered with. Right? Mm-hmm. So can you just talk about, how you learn to manage those who are managing you.
1: Ooh, that's a really,
0: this is another
1: question never been answered and asked in all the interviews I've done. Um, well, I'll just be specific with David. I, everyone knew David liked me. So I could I could throw in there. And David was encouraging me to be a writer and he'd been reading my writing. He was inviting me to the classes that he would do sporadically for writing. So he knew that that was an aspiration. And he was very sympathetic to black people and to other undeserved minorities and giving them a leg up in the business. So it wasn't too hard for me to go. And what was he going to do? Fire me. I didn't give a fuck.
0: But the way underserved, I- underserved minorities, Paris said, not undeserved, underserved. underserved. But underserved. Underserved. I just want to make sure everybody understood what you said. Because... I, I represent all the undeserved. <laughs> yeah, I just want to be really clear. I was like, wait, what did he say? Under But but okay, but talk more broadly, Paris. This is important. And I know you said no one's asked this before, but no one's asked it before because no interlocutor uh does what I do for a living. So, but there is a skill to being a director who I'm working with one now, a, a young woman who's gonna be the biggest star director. Her name is Chloe Morant. She is. Magnificent director. She's going to just explode. It's about to happen. Hire her. If you can get her, hire her for everything. She's about to be the biggest, I think. But I watched the way she manages. She's like 34 years old. She just has the gift for it. She has the gift for being able to talk to you about what she's going to shoot, why she's going to shoot it with a kind of confidence. She moves the actors around. She just with confidence and not arrogance and and not control out of insecurity. But I think a lot of people can learn the, the dynamic of this, which is to be as successful as you have been for so long at what you do, you obviously have figured out how to let, make the people to whom you sort of report enlist in your creative vision and to be able to go to them and say, and I'm here, there are some issues here and we have to work through it. So how do you think well, me, about those? super
1: educational because we might as well, because people have lasted this long in the podcast. They better learn something. So yeah. here- four things you have to do, A, to be a successful director, but specifically when you're approaching people who have more power on the show than you. You have to uh, start with gratitude. You always start with gratitude, and you always start, and it's not like, you know, licking people's asses. It's about saying what you're really grateful for, what's really good. Always start with that, and if there's nothing good about it, you are in the, you A, you're stupid, Because you can always find something to love. And B, that's really important. And it's not just to disarm them, but because that puts you in a different kind of position. You're not coming as a critic. You're coming as someone who recognizes you have an opportunity to work with them to do something, and you are grateful for that. Next, and almost simultaneously, is humility. You have to come in knowing what you know and knowing you don't know what they know. Too many directors come to us thinking they know fucking more about the show than you do or more about the character. They don't. So you have to come with the approach that, hey, I'm not sure about this because I, you know, perhaps this is you can't come knowing more than, you know, because you don't know it. And a lot of directors and other people make that mistake with coming with ego when they want to be sure. And what they're doing is overstating where they really are. Humility is having that accurate appraisal of where you exist in this food chain. Totally. Next is simplicity. Brian does not have time for a long-winded motherfucking note. He don't have time for that. So don't be beating around the bush and meandering and getting all microscopic and talk. Just make it simple. Just here's the thing. What if we did this? Have you ever thought about this? Did you guys do this for this reason or was it for this reason? Keep it fucking simple. Just some people are afraid to just get to the point. Don't say, can I ask you a question? I hate when you do
0: that. (laughs) Just
1: ask the fucking question. Yeah. And that goes with shooting, too. I always say in shooting, keep it simple. If you don't know what to do, keep it simple. Let the actors do it. Stay in the two shot. If you don't know what to do, just stay there. You don't, know, you don't have to do something because you saw a Quentin Tarantino movie. Right.
0: Understand <laughs> then why then,
1: Quentin did it, then you can do it, right? No, there's a lot of reason to do it. And okay. then the final fourth pillar is authenticity. You have to honestly come at it as you are. I am a fairly silly person, as you know, Brian. I do not take myself incredibly seriously. That's who I am. I don't really anymore put on a cloak of curiosity to deal with this. I just, I just am who I am. I'm still respectful. And I still kind of, you know, give notes knowing what I know and what I don't know all those points I said before. But I also think you have to be real. You have to say, Hey, from my family, the alcoholism manifested in this way. And that's different from your story. And yes. I'm wondering, is that, is that different for you? And I, I'm trying to figure out a way to adjust it. Cause I've sort of learned from what I've been through something else. That to me is a more compelling way to give. And, an and people charge.
0: always talk about choosing their fights, uh, which is always a, a, one problem with that is like, it puts the word fight right in there. And you know, these things for me, we shouldn't be thinking about them as fights necessarily. Right. Uh, because why should they be fights? But, but, um, But then when you're in the role of an executive producer, where you're helping the showrunner, you are the showrunner, you're helping the showrunner and achieve their vision of, or the creator of the show, if you're, you know, uh, how do you tease out, and I think this is across any profession, actually, how do you tease out compromise, meaning a true creative compromise and a compromise that compromises your artistic vision? And how do you, because I'm at times the one feels like the other, right? Because ego gets involved and you really want it. So how do you tease that out for yourself?
1: Well, as I like to say, I'm usually compromising as fast as I can.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I'm doing. <laughs> but, there is a, but but there, but but come on, man. But there is a line, right? You know, you, you know, the emotional effect you're trying to achieve in the work and yes. how do you protect that from how do you well, to give you some sad
1: and sorrowful news Brian yes. um I think it's very important when you are even as an executive producer dealing with the showrunner that you make their show yes this is how I can work with Aaron Sor- Sorkin and Kurt Sutter and Ryan Murphy I don't make Paris Barclay show with any of I make that's Ryan right. and show and I know that and through your prism point. though but through your prism or not I I refract it, but that's not my goal. My goal is to make it more Ryan Murphy, not to make it more Paris Barkley, to use Paris Barkley's skills to make it more Ryan Murphy or Kurt Sutter. I did shit on Sons of Anarchy that in the Paris Barkley world, believe you me... I never would do, but I'm in Sons of Anarchy now, and I've signed on for this, so I'm going to make this as sonsiest as this shit needs to be. I want Kurt Sutter to be happy. When you split your focus and you try to say, I'm trying to accomplish what Paris wants at the same time that, you know, what Ryan or Kurt or Aaron Sorkin wants, that's when I think it gets messy, and that's when ego gets involved. Now I'm trying to prove something that I'm as good or that I can add to. You only add in the making of what they want more what they want. That is the you elevate what they want to be more of what they like.
0: Well, that's why you're the best. I mean, you are one of the very, very best episodic directors because the shows feel like the kind of neat blue ultra of that show. That Bobby Simone episode is one of the three best episodes of NYPD Blue, which is one of the best shows in history. And like you've done that over and over again. I think that's. That yeah, makes was, a lot of sense to me.
1: That's why I liked In Treatment because even though we had three showrunners over three seasons, Sarah Tream and I were the only survivors who actually made it through all three seasons of In Treatment. And first with Rodrigo Garcia, and then with I think it was Dan Futterman and Warren. Uh, well, did
0: Warren run. Oh, Warren ran the other version? The third year, I think. Yeah, Warren they ran one version year.
1: of it. Right. Yeah, he made the third year. So each of these people needs a different director, just like each of the actors who comes into In Treatment needs a different director. So I had to figure out what the people need. Rodrigo by far is the freest for a director. He is the one who mostly, who says, go with it, try right. it, do it. You know, as you get to the other guys, they're, they're a little less on that. Partly is because Rodrigo is also director. So, so then you have to adjust. Then you have to make the show that they want to make and try to bring your talents to elevating that. Is that something
0: that you learned over time?
1: Yes. And I didn't master it until last year.
0: No, but it's something you learned over time years ago. But well, I- weird because people have these. We all have these weird. Uh, we all have these weird quirks, and and I, you know, I can remember talking to Annie on a set and talking to you about French Obers and just being like, well, for for whatever reason, they don't work in this kind of scene for me. And I remember going back and forth. And of course, years later, I was like, well, who fucking cares if Paris want to shoot a French over? That's fine. But I remember it. And now I imagine you would have been like, if you don't like French overs, I can give you four other
1: choices. I would be much easier now. What I have also decided that the many, many fights that I used to have early in my career were not worth it. And they were not. I mean, we had very
0: few fights, actually. I mean, I, we just no. we made a good show. It just didn't happen. A, like, yeah, but I mean, there were just a few. T- I just remember there were a few times where it was just like. Also, as a young person, I couldn't really articulate, I could fully articulate now what I mean is I only like French overs when they're there because it's a very particular reason that you're trying to communicate why we're on the back as opposed to, you know, as I'm sure you would say, well, there's a, you know, whatever the thing is. But I, I know now, in fact, I never want to really have that. I just want to say this is the feeling I want. And can you get the feeling to the director? I never want to be granular that way. I don't
1: think it was until Dan Futter, No, Dan Fogelman, actually. Dan Fogelman was really the person who I think clicked something with me about this. I didn't realize that I had been honing the skill of trying to get into the skin of everyone until Dan Fogelman, who just really First, makes it so easy. Do you know Fogelman and all? I've we've met, but I don't know him. He makes it so easy to understand his worldview, and he expresses it incredibly clearly. Which show, is this on this is us, or on a different show? I did pitch. Oh pitch right, a show that he created that I directed the pilot of, and in that short time, I realized that he is challenging me to be more Fogelman, and I said that's what I've always been doing. These people, I am. Uh, you're supposed to say a pilot is supposed to be the world that you create, but really it's, I, I'm making real the world that he has created. That's what, that's a, that's a difference. And exactly. I, he wanted to do the whole first five minutes in one shot. And I said, Oh my God, I don't, I think that's so bird, man. That's so been done. in Re too. Um, is it really worth it? It's going to take a lot of planning. It's, you know, Ginny Baker comes from her hotel room. She goes down an elevator. She right. goes backstage. She does this whole shit. It's going to be forever, Dan. Do we, and also, it's a pilot. They're going to want to cut this up. They're going to want to see as we pass each character. I'm going to need lots of coverage. And then we're eventually going to cut this into a thousand pieces. I'm going to do all this work for nothing. He said, I just really think it would be cool to do it. Don't you think it would be cool? So we plan to do it with the the DP. And sure enough, it's not only great, but it takes a lot less time than we did because we had planned it within an intimate of its life. It's only a half a day. We shoot a couple pops of coverage that are never used and I just learned to trust. And, you know, from that point on, Fogelman,
0: you're the king. I'm doing it. All right. Two more questions. I'm going to let you go. Uh, No, I could go forever, Paris, talking to you. So I just want to be respectful of uh, time and everything. So um, I'm just going to look at these questions, see what I think is most important. Okay. One, talk a little bit about why and how you decided that being a leader in the micro wasn't enough for you, that you wanted to actively be a leader in the macro and, and, you know, uh, taking on the responsibilities of DGA, which then gave you a platform that now, even though you're not president of DGA, you know, you are an industry leader and you speak, uh, broadly and, and you are um, you know, not just an elder statesman, but somebody who people come to for, for guidance. Why did you want, uh, uh, What made you ready to take that mantle on and uh, and why? It's my mother. And, you know, my son just
1: said it around his graduation time when he's talking, when he was giving his final presentation, which they call their capstone presentation. He said the same thing that I, I felt even more simply, more eloquent. I grew up with a mother who, you know, had seven kids and a husband who was, you know, pretty much distracted and not a part of the family and worked in a glass factory and really wanted to become a social worker. So as we got older, she went back to college. She got her master's, she became a social worker. She started working with the Illinois Department of Vocational Rehabilitation, getting people who were out of the workforce jobs. They were beds. They were people were coming back from addiction counseling. She did that until she retired and, and God bless her, she's still alive at 85 now. And what I saw in that, I realized I've always emulated, which is it isn't enough to get yours. Getting oh. yours is not enough. You know, she said, I want to satisfy and help other people patch together their lives and do their thing. And so I started hanging around the DGA and I saw all these old, you know, when I got there, it was Robert Wise was still alive and John Frankenheimer. And they were all part of DGA leadership, but they did not need the director's guild to help their career. But they saw Frankenheimer came up to me and said, I heard the HBO wants you to do a movie. If you want me to call them, I'll call them. They better not mess with you. And I said, that's what they're doing. The people who are established are there to protect the younger people. And at that time, I'm also getting abused on projects, creatively speaking. And I'm going to the DJ for help. And they they had to seize film here and stop this from happening there, just bad situations. And I realized this is really empowering when you're young and you, and then I read about the DJ and that's why they got together in the first place. They, they were already famous and established. They were looking out for the next generation. I was very moved by that. So as part of the next generation, I hung around till I became like the generation that's working. And now I said, we have to protect everybody else. And so we've really been, since I've been president in that time, tried to expand the guild. It's a little like the Academy, but I hope we well from Stephen
0: to you is a very incredible time period. You know, just uh, obviously, think, you know, I, think. I love him and and just watching the, the this, you know, it was a perk. you and he together was really special. And then handing it off to you was an incredible thing, too. Yeah, it's it's but also, I know I'm saying I I you took Stephen, you right, Stephen was the vice president, and then you were right, Stephen was Soderberg. the national president,
1: Soderbergh, right.
0: he was yeah. national president, which is in the east, which is the highest and thing. Then Taylor could, was the president, and then you were president. Taylor, I
1: came after Taylor. Um, But anyway, so I thought that that was worth doing. And as what I found out is that it's given me so much. I mean, I I spoke about it in my speech because, you know, when you're actually involved in creating and helping to create careers and protecting people, you're doing something, you're doing stuff that can't be counted. You're doing stuff that's going to affect them and their families forever. And you don't need any additional money to do it. Um,
0: So last question, when I, two questions, one, your mother, how proud is she of you? Must be crazy, right? She's pretty crazy, proud of me, but yet she's not afraid to zats me. She came
1: out for my tenth wedding anniversary, and she just fried me. It was like the fryer's roast. I thought, "Hello." I Don't even want to quote some of the jokes she threw That's down. Awesome. That must
0: have. She just. Really, must have been great. That uh, was and, and delightful. Lastly, you know your speech about the purpose-driven man to your kids. Um, if your kids wanted to get into the show business and. Mm. How would you, what would your words to them be about that whole thing? And, and then to anyone sort of, how do you live a purpose-driven life if what you want to do is tell stories and, and, and join the circus, as we all have?
1: Well, can if you can just do it without making it about you, it'll always work. My son wants to be a photographer. I always tell him, if your focus, as you look through the eyepieces, can I make this better? Can I give a person an effect? Can I make move them? Can I show them something they haven't seen? Can I expand their vision with what I'm doing? Then you're doing the right thing. If you're just trying to please yourself all to be locked in a room, if you want to be a director to just make movies that make you happy, it's too late for that. The world is too fucked up. You have to do things that change the world now. Even if it's just emotionally, even if it's just revealing, you know, a non-binary person for the first time, you know, on a major show, you have to do things in what you're doing that matter. Otherwise, you're really wasting the time. So get into show business by all means, but don't do it without being willing to change the world. We're desperate. Look at what's happening. You know, we can't, we need all hands on deck, especially the creative community to affect you. I'm not saying everything needs to be a polemic. But everything needs to be infused with things we care about. I mean, I'm doing this monster thing. And I'm thinking, how what can, what new can we learn about Jeffrey Dahmer? And Ryan has turned it to the victims. Ryan has turned That's it to great. the police. He's turned it to those people that we don't see the process that led to that guy. Are Ryan. you directing
0: the episode where the guy gets to the cops and they don't believe him? No, Carl Franklin did that. Oh, my God, Really? Oh wow! I can't. I love corporate. But. I can't. What a brilliant guy, Paris! Everything you're saying makes total sense, my friend. Thank you for this. You're an inspiration. You're one of the greats. And um, thank you, I, just, a, I appreciate you, and I applaud you. And now that you're in my podcast rotation, I have 300 episodes. Yeah, get, get in there. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. All right. Thanks, everybody. You can find Paris online. He doesn't tweet that much, but he's there. Uh, what I'm are you? There. What's your Harvard, name on? Harvard, Harvard
1: what are you on the Twitter? At Harper Bar, H-A-R-P-A-R-B-A-R. It's the name of Harvard. It's the name of Harvey, the town I grew in. And then it's my par and my bar. Those letters seem to have come back. Harris is
0: great at a lot of things, but making a Twitter handle you can remember is not one of them. I'm at Brian Koppelman because that's simple. And uh, find me there. Email me at momentbk at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody.